Ghost note is a note that's played, but goes unnoticed, like so much of the work behind the music before it hits our eardrums. I'm Hannah Copeland. Join me for in-depth, honest, and unpredictable interviews of Kansas City's music makers, plus new music happenings to put on your radar. It's all on Ghost Notes via the Fountain City Frequency Network. Geller is the concertmaster of the Kansas City Symphony. He's the principal solo violinist, and even after winning numerous awards for his performances from all over the world, he still gets nervous. It's an incredibly unnatural experience to be sitting in your chair, raised up a little bit, in front of 2,000 people looking at you. Noah earned his bachelor and graduate degree at Juilliard, and he shares what it's really like to attend such a prestigious institution. It's a great place to go to school. You're right in the center of New York City at age 18, and you know, there's, there's a drinking age in the rest of the country, but in New York, you can go down to the village and purchase a fake ID for $40. In college, he co-founded the group Shirami, which is Hebrew for Song of Our People. He's still active in Shirami, which plays Jewish music that is often obscure and was composed during the Holocaust era. Today, Noah also addresses the exclusivity of the classical music world and how it's evolved throughout the centuries. The music you hear underneath the interview is our recording from Noah's solo performance at our studio. Thanks for joining us. This is Ghost Notes. The concertmaster is, uh, from a historical standpoint, mm -hmm. uh, the solo violinist. So if there is an orchestral solo, I'll play it, and I'll also um, participate uh, in performing as a soloist with the orchestra, like in, in concertos. Or Is a concertmaster always the viol a violinist? Yes, even if the principal cellist is a better leader. <laughs> it's still the violin. Well, lucky you then, right? Well, I think so, yeah. You arrived here in 2012, correct? Mm -hmm. And how have things changed at all since you've been here, or have they, at the symphony? When I came here, we were in our second year. It was the second full season in Hellsburg Hall, and um, I think the hall has been a really great um, gathering place for the community to come and hear great music, and it's, uh, it's really a pleasure for everyone to play in there. So you've played in many and many other cities. Is there anything unique about Kansas City that you think that you noticed when you came here the, about the Kansas City classical music scene? Uh, yeah, I think it's a very personal scene. And I think that we are uniquely supported by our public and we have a unique personal relationship with, with our public. And also the support that we have from our board and management is quite unique, I think, compared with, with other big orchestras where there's a, a feeling of distance or even a malicious kind of, you know, just a feeling of disconnection. Frankly, Kansas City is weathering this storm well, but a lot of orchestras are having problems. 
you tell me when you first started, tell me about when you first started playing music? I was five when I first started. Uh, my father was a singer, professional singer, uh, and he was the cantor in the synagogue where I grew up. Uh, and I and they you know they presented me with a little violin and they're like, do you want to you know what do you want to play? And I, well, I, they said, what do you want to play before they presented me with a little violin? I was a little backwards yes. there. Um, and I said, I'll play the violin. And not knowing that, of course, that was one of the more challenging endeavors that I would, <laughs> yeah. that I would take on. But um, I, I really lived in a, in a nice household. You know, I, my parents weren't overly pushy about it. And they sort of I mean, they didn't let me quit when I asked them to quit, but they uh, weren't overly um, overbearing. You know, now you have, like, really intense moms or dads that mm -hmm. may lock you in a room or whatever, whip you when you play out of tune. But that none of that stuff happened. So there was a point when you wanted to quit? When you oh, were... yeah. Yeah, many. Uh, well, I would say from about 8 through 12, age 8 through 12. I started when I was 5. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I just wanted to hang out with my friends and play baseball. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'd say it's a pretty normal reaction for, for a kid, especially one who has a strong head and a contrarian attitude like myself. But you, your parents made you stick with it. Well, they just said, wait till you're 13. Wait till you're 13. And then by the time I was 13, I didn't want to quit anymore. I read that you're a first-generation American. My mom is from Germany, okay. yeah, on my mom's side. My dad is American. You're Jewish. Mm -hmm. Has that inspired uh, your involvement with Shirami? Yeah, I think so. Um, Shirami is a group I started with uh, some buddies when I was in school. Mm -hmm. Well, we were trying to get concerts, you know, we'd, and we had to make our own concerts because nobody was calling us to <laughs> invite yeah. us to play concerts. Yeah. And so we ended up saying, well, we have this Jewish connection, and, uh, and we ended up finding all of this amazing music that we had no idea existed. Tell me, I mean, a little bit more about that. You just play music ins inspired by pe people who wrote composers during the Holocaust? or Shirami is Hebrew for Song of Our People. Our, the, the music that we play, is it, it extends beyond just those composers whose, uh, either whose lives or whose careers were um, impacted by the Holocaust because the reach of, of what the Nazis did, it was not just to send into obscurity those composers who were living during that time, but also that history. Uh, uh, there's a, a large amount of music that started being composed around the 1900s centered around a sort of a Jewish feeling, you know, like a Jewish theme. Like Jewish composers were were wanting to incorporate their heritage into the music that they were writing, so I guess what what I would say is that this music that had uh, a, that was Jewish sounding. So all of this music I think is encompassed uh, by what Shirami wants to bring to the public's attention because mm -hmm. I think that a lot of people 
have never heard any of it. your bachelor's and master's degree at Juilliard, correct? Yeah. Yeah. I think Juilliard's a name that everybody knows, but a lot of people don't know anything about the culture there. Mm-hmm. Can you just tell me what, what it's like to go to school at Juilliard? I loved Juilliard. It's a place where every, people think that everybody who goes there is like some superstar talent, but that's not really true. The, the people who go there are just people like you and me just some people work harder than others or some people are just gifted um i was in the having to work hard category so i made that a priority and it was a nice place because i felt like i had the time to do that yeah i mean it's a great place to go to school you're right in the center of new york city at age 18 and you know there's there's a drinking age in the rest of the country, but in New York, you can go down to the village and purchase a fake ID for $40. We had a blast. A lot of people who have untrained ears, myself might be in that category, for classical music at least. Um, they hear classical music and it, unfortunately, they say it all sounds the same sometimes. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, if you turn on the radio late at night when you're listening to KCUR something it's only classical music they can't really tell the difference um, oh. between different pieces so if you're looking to start listening to classical music um, what are some of the things that to listen for to that to know to know that you know one thing's better than another oh to know that one thing is better than another that's <laughs> well I think th- number one Classical music certainly doesn't all sound the same because it's been written since, I mean, if you think of the modern classical music era, it started with Bach in 1685, and it goes through the present, and there are many, many composers who are still composing music today. Um, So you want to talk about variety. I think there's more variety in classical music than there is in any other type of music. Um, the question is, are they representing all of those things on the radio? <laughs> Probably not. Right. Or are we representing all of those things in our concerts? We try. Uh, but I think that many of our audience members are a little bit resistant to especially more yeah. modern music. Um, however, that music is only, I, I think people only resist it because it is completely unfamiliar. Um, and that sound world is not something that we grew up with as somebody telling us this is music. Mm-hmm. Whereas why do, why do we accept one, th- one type of, I mean, it's all just a combination of sounds. But certain sounds we're told are consonant and Others, we're told, are dissonant. And those dissonant sounds, we don't want to listen to. 
it's uncomfortable but I think that you can become uh, you can enjoy that music the same way if you just listen to it a little bit more I've been shocked how it's sort of like how your taste buds change when you start eating different foods your ear will also change and um, well luckily I had my dad who was really he really liked certain uh, a wide variety of composers and he bought me CDs of uh, Bartok at an early age and I remember listening to specifically the sonata for two pianos and percussion by Bartok and just being scared I mean the music is scary mm -hmm. and I would sit and I, but I was like wow this is amazing but I'd you know be a little bit freaked out and and uh, to this day I still love the piece but um, and it's still scary <laughs> but it's great music yeah. I remember yeah I, I got a, a CD of, of the four string or the six string quartets of Bartok um, and when you're when you're younger and you want to listen to like I think I was also listening to some metal but Bartok is way cooler than metal. I don't, I don't. I shouldn't say way cooler. That's not nice either. But it's different, uh, and it's it's equally exciting, I think. Uh, and there's a whole a, a whole bunch of composers I think that that are just unfamiliar to us or that, that we don't know. Well, the the general public, because it's a little bit more takes a little bit more effort to get into it. Um, but you get so many more rewards by because there are layers to this music and once you start listening to it you start hearing things that uh, I mean it's really a rabbit hole I, I will never hear all of the great music in my lifetime classical world sometimes is considered exclusive um, players who perhaps sometimes didn't grow up you know in a good enough school or have enough money to buy expensive instruments mm -hmm. or have the best teachers mm -hmm. um, don't have the chance to play classical music or even hear it so can you talk to me a little bit about how that feeling of exclusivity affects the genre well I think yeah I I definitely think that um that that's an accurate statement that uh, it is an expensive endeavor to study as a kid you have to go to a lesson once a week with a teacher and if the teacher is really good it's not cheap mm -hmm. um, so you have to make that a priority um, I can tell you from my own personal experience that we were not rich mm -hmm. um, and my teacher growing up was extremely generous uh, because I showed talent. Um, and so I think that any time that there's a situation like that, if, if somebody is truly talented, that hopefully they will get noticed and they will receive the proper training that they deserve. 
without having to spend the same money, you know, or, or somebody will help them with, yeah. with the payment. Um, I know there are programs, uh, for instance, in Philadelphia, I know uh, some of my colleagues teach in a program that, that, that was founded by uh, one of the members of the orchestra, whereby these, these kids sort of from the inner city can take lessons, take their regular weekly lessons with members of the Philadelphia Orchestra. And I think that's wonderful, and they don't have to pay. Yeah. Um, so where am I going with all of this? Is, is it exclusive? Has it always been exclusive since the beginning of time? Yes. I, I mean, classical music started out as uh, uh, something that the royalty would have to show off the extravagance of their whatever it was, you know. So whoever had the most, the, the best orchestra was, yeah. you know, they had status that way. Uh, and of course, this is hundreds of years ago. So cities would maintain a symphony orchestra, they would have culture, you know, a great city, well, and then who would go see the, that orchestra? Could anybody just go buy a ticket? No, it was not that cheap to get a ticket, you know. Uh, and it's, it's still, I think we have created ways now f for it to be accessible. Uh, I know that students can go to the orchestra, and I know that the orchestra has a certain amount of uh, of affordable seats. Um, so if you want to go, and we also have a certain amount of free concerts or, or special concerts, so if you want to go, you can definitely go. I think that there's an issue of an aging audience, but I personally believe that that just has to do with the fact that as you get older, you have a little bit more time. <laughs> when you're young and raising a family, I don't know, it, it, takes, it takes effort to, to get out. But um, most of all, I think the most important thing is that you love music and you want to go hear it played live because that's the best way to hear it. find out when Noah Geller is playing next, you can visit the Kansas City Symphony website, which is kcsymphony.org. Coming up in the next two weeks before our next episode is the Mix Master 2016 Music Conference. It's on April 15th and 16th at the Lawrence Public Library. This is a two-day free music industry event with the goal of helping independent artists improve their music making and business skills. The Friday session will focus on production tips and tricks. Saturday is panel discussions with radio DJs, journalists, and promoters. I'm going to try and be there. You should come say hi. On April 8th at 8.30 at the Tank Room, you can come see Chris Mech and the Guilty Birds release their first full-length debut album called It's 4 a.m. Somewhere. Who knows? Maybe you're listening to this at 4 a.m. You should come out. The openers include Claire and the Crowded Stage and the Westerners. And finally, on April 16th is Record Store Day, which is essentially a holiday encouraging you to go out and support your local record stores. At Mills Record Company in Westport, starting at 8 a.m. on the 16th, they have coffee and donuts, followed by 20 different live acts of all genres, and they're all local. Check it out. <laughs> 
If you have any musical events coming up, you should let us know. Send me an email at ghostnotespodcast at gmail.com. We're also, of course, on Facebook and Twitter. Ghost Notes is produced by Matt Hodap. Our theme music is composed by Jamie Searle. And our sexy website, called FountainCityFrequency.com, was designed by Matthew Sullivan. You can go to that website. We have links of everything I just read about and more. I'm Hannah Copeland. I'll see you in two weeks for our interview with Mikhail Shapiro.